Shit We've Read is a proud member of Bilo Network, a network of geeky podcasts. Please visit shitweavered.com to support the show. Now let's talk about some books. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very exciting episode of Shit We've Read, a sci-fi and fantasy book podcast hosted by some geeky friends. My name is Jason Rico, and I will be one of your hosts on today's episode, where we will be talking with Kika Hatsupulu, the debut author of Threads That Bind. More on that in a bit, but first things first, I have to introduce my co-host, Valo Romero. Hey, Rico. How's it going? Pretty good. I'm excited to talk about this book. I feel like this was a, this was a great book. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, too. Um, the book, like I mentioned, is Threads of That Bind, which is a young adult Greek mythology-inspired urban fantasy. So there's a lot there, not to mention that it also takes place in an apocalyptic world and uh, romance. Anyhow, we'll, we'll get to it. Um, the book is available now from Razorbill, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House, available in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. So definitely go out there and check it out. Um, and if you haven't yet, hopefully this episode convinces you to do so. Let's give the people the synopsis. Uh, do you want to read it or shall I? Um, you know, I will be doing a lot of talking in this interview. So why don't you read the synopsis, Rico? That's fair. You're going to do a lot of the heavy lifting on this. Cause, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Cause carry I'm... your weight, Rico. Okay. Wow. Okay. I guess I'm <laughs> reading the synopsis. Not that you're our editor, no, producer. Yeah. You wrote the outline, <laughs> scheduled the interview, but like, really, I think you need to carry team your mascot, weight a little bit more. You know, <laughs> did you say team mascot? Yeah. Oh my god, get out of here! Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. So here's a synopsis for the book: In a world where the children of the gods inherit their powers, a descendant of the Greek fates must solve a series of impossible murders to save her sisters, her soulmate and her city. Descendants of the fates are always born in threes, one to weave, one to draw, and one to cut the threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. The Aura sisters are no exception. Eo, the youngest, uses her fate-born abilities as a private investigator in the half-sunken city of Atlanta. But her latest job leads her to a horrific discovery. Somebody is abducting women maiming their life threads and setting the resulting wraiths loose in the city to kill. To find the culprit, she must work alongside Ede Runa, the right hand of the infamous mob queen, and the boy with whom she shares a rare fate thread linking them as soulmates before they've even met. But the investigation turns personal when Eo's estranged older sister turns up on the arm of her best suspect. Amid unveiled secrets from her past and her growing feelings for Ede, Eo must follow clues to the city's darkest corners and unearth a conspiracy that involves some of the city's most powerful players before destruction comes to her own doorstep. So that's the synopsis. There's a lot there. Yeah. I'm excited to talk to the author about all of it. Oh, yeah. And I'm I'm curious, what's your, before we get into this interview, before, yeah. you know, I want our listeners to know, like, what was, what's your non-spoiler impression of this book? Oh, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed it. I, I did really enjoy it. Um, there, somewhere I read a description of it as a noir mystery, Greek mythology, and urban fantasy, which um, is like the holy trinity for me. Maybe not the holy trinity, a holy trinity. There's a lot of that's, trinities that I enjoy. That's pretty good. For, honestly, yeah. Like if I were to pick a Rico book... 
This would be one of them. Like, this would be like, Rico, say less. I got you. <laughs> this is a book I would give you. Like, it felt very, like, comic book action with, like, again, that noir mystery. A little bit of like, noir mystery. Story. Mm-hmm. So, it, and, like, the fates, oh, just everything about it. Yeah. I, I loved this book. I mean, I, I tell the author in our interview, I didn't know what to expect. Like, you know, modern mainstream Greek myth retellings tend to follow a formula. And while that's that doesn't make them bad, and I think that each author has their own take and their own flavor and flair, I I really I was surprised by this one, and I'm glad that I was surprised. I'm glad that like this subverted all expectations in terms of like what to expect from like a YA Greek myth myth retelling. And it really spiced the genre back up for me. Like mm-hmm. I yeah. haven't read a lot of Greek retelling in the last few years because I've been busy, but also I, you know, I just feel like there were some, there's some really good series out there and this is one of them. Like, you know, I, Percy Jackson is sort of like the epitome to me of like the YA Greek myth retelling, especially for, for like neurodivergent, young adults, like from the early 2000s, like, I think we all really are like, this is an amazing book. But this, this, this is ushering in a new age of Greek retelling. And I I'm excited to see where the industry goes with it. Because I, I and I hope our listeners support it. I think that we need more just like casually queer YA, like, not romance heavy books. And I think this is one of them. Romance definitely plays a part. But Sure. Yeah. Um, I think the story really stands on its own and mm-hmm. that just kind of adds a little flavor to it. Yeah. For our romantics. <laughs> I, I think it was really important for people to know that if you are a fan of more modern Greek retellings, uh, I think you really enjoy this book because it's different and I think it'll, it'll shake up your expectations. And yeah. if you are a person who wants to be a fan of them, but hasn't been, and I put myself in that category, this book is really different, and I think it is enjoyable yeah. because of that. It gives you what you th- are lacking in other books, I think. Completely agree. Yeah, completely agree. I feel like I've read a lot of like Percy Jackson adjacent books over the last decades, decade-ish, mm-hmm. since that book was released, and this is nothing like that. Yeah. Um, it's it's really cool. It's really unique, and um Something that is worth pointing out that this is a Greek retelling told by someone who is Greek. A a Greek author. A Greek author um, whose culture really permeates this book and her uh, like perspective, her, her international mindset really comes through with this book. Like she just has such a rich and accepting and diverse worldview. And this book is that it's, it's her heart and soul poured into it and you can tell, and it's just, like amazing. So I'm excited to talk to the author and learn more about it and ask some questions that I I've, I had throughout the book without spoilers. Of course, this is not a spoiler episode, so you may proceed as you wish. All right. Well, let's not waste any more time. And instead, let's get to our interview with author Ika Hatsupulu. Enjoy. Well, Kika, hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you so much for joining us. We're super excited to talk to you about your book, uh, Threads That Bind. Thank you so much. As of the time this episode releases, the book will have 
release a couple weeks ago. So everybody listening, by all means, please go check it out. Um, and if you're still on the fence about it for some reason, hopefully this episode will convince you to go ahead and buy it. Okay, um, perfect. I added a lot of fun reading it, Bella. I'm sure you yeah, did. I know you definitely. I know, I know you like <laughs> mythology too, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this was, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it. <laughs> okay, perfect. Yeah, I saw it described as like mystery and then mythology, Greek mythology, and urban fantasy. And I love all three of those things. So it's like, I am in, I am sold. I am, I'm ready to read this book. So. <laughs> perfect, perfect. I can't wait to talk to you guys. Uh, but before we actually talk about the book, uh, one thing we always like to do on our episodes is talk about some of the other books we're reading. Uh, just because we all, we all are book lovers and are always reading multiple books, I'm sure. So yeah. is there anything that you have recently read or currently reading or going to read that you're excited to talk about? Um, I recently finished uh, Better Than the Movies by Aileen Painter, which was a very fun rom-com, YA rom-com. And I'm just uh, starting Bitterthorn by the Fantastic Cat Dan, which is a UK release. It's really good. It's a, um, a queer, gothic fairy tale. It's a reimagining of a fairy tale. I'm not going to say which because it's a huge spoiler. Um, but I'm very excited about it. The first uh, page and the first chapter that I read was just fantastic prose, very good vibes, like aesthetics, all dark and gothic. I'm very excited to continue. I'll definitely be adding that to my list. I love yeah. a good gothic fairy tale retelling. So, <laughs> yep. sold. I, you don't even have to tell me what the fairy tale is. I'm, I'm going to read that. <laughs> Yay! Perfect. Perfect. Awesome. All right, then. Uh, I think we should just get into the book and talk about it. Mm -hmm. You ready? Yes, I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. Well, so we like to start with you know hearing. Uh, what you can tell us and everyone listening, uh, just what your book is about and what they can expect from the story. So your own synopsis of the book, if you will. Okay. So Threads That Bind is a fantasy noir about the descendant of the Greek fates. She can uh, touch and cut the threads that connect us to life, but also to other things we love, like people and places and objects and even ideas. And she uses these skills to work as a detective in a half-sunken, like, post-apocalyptic city. And she gets embroiled in a series of otherworldly murders that she has to solve while working with the boy that she is destined to love. So readers can expect lots of um, gods of Greek and world mythology, a murder mystery with lots of uh, red herrings and different suspects, noir setting in an urban fantasy kind of world and a soul slow burn romance uh, with a soulmate trope. I think that summarizes it pretty well. Um, <laughs> it's like you, you know, wrote the book or something. Um, I love that. I think something I really enjoyed about what you kind of called out was the fact that these fates are not just, or these ties are not just about like love and relationships, but things that people love around them. And so that really comes to play in the novel. And I just thought that was a really interesting detail and a really interesting take on the fates. It's not just about their life and their loves, but like, oh, this coffee shop, this passion of mine, right? Like we, we talk about these characters and, and they're so much more deep because of that. I think just the way that our characters, the, the Moira born, uh, see the world. So it's super interesting. So 
And just kind of on that, like what inspired you to write this reimagining? Like what, what really about the fates um, inspired you to write this story? I've always been fascinated by the Greek fates and uh, especially by the fact that they have all this power. They can literally decide who lives and who dies, but they're never the main character in uh, mythology as well as retellings or like modern iterations of the myths. And I wanted them to take center stage. And I thought because they can see all these connections between people and they can manipulate life, it would be very interesting to make uh, one of them a detective because I think uh, it would give her like additional skills and additional expertise on solving mysteries. And these two uh, elements combined and then a bunch of different elements. I just threw in everything I loved, uh, everything I love in uh, sci-fi and fantasy fiction. And this came out. Yeah, I think it's really, it's interesting that you mentioned that they're usually background characters. They're not usually our, you know, protagonists or our heroes that they leave that to the actual classic heroes or the Greek pantheon gods, you know, Zeus, the ones we're familiar with. Um, and so that was, that was really interesting to us and, and they don't really come into play a lot in the novel either. Um, we really do focus on sort of these minor gods and like, was there a reason you picked the gods that you did pick to focus on, but beyond the, just the fates, but the other born? Uh, yes, there was. Uh, so when I decided that I was going to focus on the Greek fates and the three sisters that make up the main characters of this novel, I I decided to touch upon sisterhood and siblinghood and family as a theme. And then it seemed really cool to me to also focus on sibling gods entirely. So it's a world made up by sibling gods because the justification in the novel is that power is meant to be shared. And I did a lot of research in Greek and world mythology to narrow down gods that have siblings, uh, especially those that are not very often represented in media. And I, I felt like this theme of sharing power with others is uh, central to the story, but also central to the world at large, especially today. And it became an overall theme of the series. I want to jump in and just say that I love that aspect of the book of how uh, the power was shared between siblings. Um, and, and and I thought that was such a unique take on uh, you know, deity born children. And like you said, sharing a power, how it's meant to be shared. I thought that was really cool. And it made for a really interesting uh, story and, and I guess magic system, power system, if you want to call it that. I think it, it made it interesting for myself as well, because everything depended on this very close um, sibling relationships. And it made everything more complex in how they share this power or how they have different aspects of this power that are often um, in battle with each other. Uh, I think it deepened the main character's uh, relationship with her sisters and the rest of the other born, which are like the, my name for people who are descendant of the gods. It made other born in general much more complex than I have seen in other mythology descendants yeah the world building that you did around that i mean complex is 
a great way of, of a great term for that. Um, because I think one of the things I really enjoyed, like Rico said, was that how the power was shared. And I think that that's something that's always kind of not bothered me, but always been questionable about these other retellings is like, okay, so this one person who, you know, is descended from a God just has all this power and there's, you know, limited constraints on them. And so I think this was a really interesting way to kind of like bring this back into reality a little bit and made it feel so much more real that like one person can't carry the weight of an entire God. Right. Um, That's even, even for, I don't know, even in, even in Greek myth, that always seemed a little, a little crazy, but I, I really, really enjoyed the theme of siblings and the idea that, you know, people are connected um, through lineage. And, you know, if you could just kind of expand on that a little bit, I think like, where was your inspiration drawn from there? How did you build up that world and that lore? Like, I, 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 it's just, it was really well done. It was so rich in the book, I love to know how that kind of came to be. Um, I think it started with the uh, fates, as I said, and then researching um, sibling gods throughout world mythology. I basically um, tried to pull in all of the gods that I love, such as the muses. I, I particularly loved creating the muses because they're kind of nefarious in this world. They don't just inspire for art's sake, but they inspire for profit. And then there were other gods that I also felt could be used in this modern, like, urban scenario. Like, the Furies are as kind of, like, the deliverers of justice or the Onirborn, which are the gods of dreams in Greek mythology, as people who kind of, like create the perfect environment for relief and sleep, kind of like a drug for sleep. And uh, with other world mythologies, I tried to pull in um, aspects that I found interesting uh, within this noir setting. So that was the, the main inspiration, just things that I found interesting and trying to place them in this modern scenario with like a, uh, within a community that operates pretty much as ours does with like profit capitalism on the mind um, with a political system that's democratic, but not completely fair. Um, Yeah. Um, You said the fates and the muses were, you know, so fun for you to write. Was there a particular story uh, myth tale that, inspired you um originally or was it just sort of their their history in mythology um and wanting to sort of create your own new myth if you will it was definitely more of a generic approach and not a specific story because even in greek ancient texts the fates are always side characters that kind of like issue warnings or work like a deus ex machina uh, type of trick, uh, but there was one iteration of the myth. I don't, I can't remember which one right now because I read it while in high school. Um, that said that the fates could weave threads that connect you to the things you care about and not just life, which then became one of the central aspects of Io's powers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's 
I, I had a feel like, you know, I had a feeling it was just sort of the, the general like inspiration, but was there any sort of, you know, based on these stories, right? The Greek myths and the muses and the fates, um, but sort of in general, like, did you have any, did you feel like it was easier or harder um, when writing your own story, having the the context, the history of these tales? Um, I would say in general, it was easier because I placed them in such an unusual setting that um, I didn't do a lot of research on like historical aspects. I didn't place it in antiquity. It was a very conscious choice to place it in a the whole setting, the whole story in a modern world. And um, the aesthetic I was going for was very noir and very uh, detective uh, on the hunt for a murderer. So I could explore and create so much without being affected by other stories uh, inspired by Greek myth. And it was also very fun. And um, it was very fun, as I mentioned, to figuring out how these descendants would fit in such a modern world. Um, I didn't have any constraints, I think, at the writing stage uh, because I just created things without restrictions or abiding to like genre or retelling conventions. But I think one of the caveats of all this genre bending was that during, while I was querying this project, I received a lot of feedback that it was too weird or that Greek myth is oversaturated or that, on the other hand, that this iteration of um, Greek myth doesn't follow the current trend. So I think it was hard in terms of marketing and not as much as uh, as when I was creating it. So it, it's funny that you mentioned that because that is something that we talked about, um, Rico and I, when we were planning for this episode was like, that you were given that feedback that, uh, you know, Greek myth was oversaturated or it wasn't trending anymore. Um, you know, throughout, throughout the process, I'm sure the feedback changed. Um, but this is so different. It's so refreshing, like as somebody who, and I'm sure Rico might feel this way and please feel free to, to chime Mm -hmm. in Rico, but like they do tend to feel very formulaic at this point. Right. Uh, But this is really the first one that I'm aware of that I've, really enjoyed uh, in a long time because of how different it is. But I just, I found it really interesting that they, you know, gave you that feedback. I don't think Greek myth will ever not be a bestseller, but to discourage someone with such a unique take on it, like I I was mad for you. (laughs) I was like, no, this is such a great iteration. Why would you discourage this? Like, it shouldn't follow the trends. It should break the mold. You know, we want we want diverse stories and diverse perspectives. And and I think your book really tackles that. So I'm just curious, like, what were your sort of conversations like when you pushed back? Because obviously this book got published. But, you know, what did you say uh, in these conversations like about, you know, Greek myth still resonates so much with us? And it obviously means a lot to you. And yeah, I'd love to know, because like I said, this is such a great book and it would it would have made me mad if this had never been made but I'm glad I got to read it yeah thank you so much that's that's lovely and um it's really a relief and uh, a big source of joy to hear it resonating with you as well as with other readers and booksellers it was a weird combination of like different genres different elements and all thrown in within a book um I'm not sure I had 
at the querying stage, you don't really have the opportunity to push back on this conversation. So it was me sending over my manuscript, my pits, and receiving this sort of replies. It was never, I have to say, it was never a reply from an agent who had read the manuscript. It was always at the first querying stage when they only see your query, your pits, like the back flap of your uh, book and a chapter or two. So I had no room to push back. I just, it made me, it did make me uh, a little bit mad because all of those, all of the people currently that I know of writing these retellings are not Greeks. And I have a lot of Greek friends who write in English and their own iterations of the myths are very unique, very genre-bending, such as Like Threads is. And it made me mad that um, Western media or like the Western publishing world has decided this is the one way to tell a story inspired by Greek myth and there's no room for anything Mm -hmm. else, which I think obviously threads and other books as well, as well as short stories by wonderful uh, Greek authors uh, prove that there's room. Um, But yeah, I think Greek mythology absolutely still resonates and will resonate with pretty much every reader, especially, I think, children and young adults. It's just, it's like a fairy tale. Um, But I think that ancient Greek culture and modern Greek culture are very, very different things. Um, Ancient Greece is everywhere. In Greece, when I grew up, there's ruins in every neighborhood. There are idioms and phrases uh, pulled from ancient Greek language. Um, it's very tied to my childhood and growing up and my selfhood right now. But it's not my experience of Greece. The Greece of today is full of political strife, of immigration, of wars, and that's all in the last century alone. And um, there's a lot of modernity to Greece now. It's an amalgamation of different cultures. And that's what I wanted to represent and pull into this book, kind of like modern Greece, but with some of the ancient Greek gods. Yeah, you, you touch on a lot of things in your response that I, I, wanted, I want to tackle in this interview, because I think, well, one, you know, the modern aspect of this tale, the the sort of melting pot of cultures that you have in the in their city is just, you know, I think a really good, I don't know, really good lesson or a, a good perspective to have in this modern age. So I want I definitely want to dive deeper into that. But you kind of talk about in your acknowledgments in your book, uh, kind of circling back to how long this took and in the querying stage, um, you said it took 16 years of writing, eight years of querying and two years of editing. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Um, just because I think some of our listeners are, you know, maybe writing their own books or just interested in the book writing process. And yeah, I don't know that that really stuck out to me, too. Uh, yeah, it was a long road. I started writing when I was very young. I was kind of, um, I think it was around 12 or 13. I had previously read 
all of Meg Cabot's uh, Princess Diaries uh, series in Greek. Only the first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, I love her. I just love her. It's a great series. <laughs> and uh, I read her first novels in Greek, and then the next weren't available and wouldn't be available in English. So I asked my um, family at the time to order them for me in English, which they did. And I read like throughout her whole catalog within a couple of years, just novel after novel after novel in English. And I think my knowledge of English and my understanding of it just grew exponentially. And then um, I kind of started mimicking Macabot's style um, down to the prose, to the plot. It was I was basically writing fan fiction of Macabot's work. And then slowly I sifted over to like the great, the golden age of YA fantasy, like Twilight, Hunger Games, the Shadow Hunter series. I read all of those also very fast. And then I sifted to reading uh, even some adult fantasy where uh, just the ones I could understand because, yeah, it was difficult for me as a teen. And uh, I went on writing, I pretty much wrote a book every summer while I was on school on a break from summer break from school. And towards uh, the end of my school years, I decided to go into like the English department at Thessaloniki where I grew up and later get an MFA in creative writing. And then from then onwards, it was just writing a book, trying to query it and get an agent, writing a book, trying to query it again. And this one, this one is the one that stuck. I got, I think I wrote the prologue and first chapter sometime in 2017 or 2018. And I kept thinking about the story and like adding different elements to it in my mind, but I didn't set, sit down to write the whole thing until I want to say 2019. And I where it did, I got a revise and resubmit, which is an agent asking you to make big, big edits and then send the book back to them. And I got my agent through that and signed with my agent in 2021, so two years ago, sold the book to my editor in late 2021, and then spent the rest of the time until now editing it and just... Uh, doing publicity for it all the the big the big steps of uh authoring uh that's it's surprising to me that this is the only one that stuck because I, I i you're a very talented writer so i'd be curious to know what your other books were that didn't make it to the stage because this is such a great book and i hope we get to to read more of this world <laughs> and and of your brain children your your stories that kind of are, are swimming in there. What were some other books that were pitched? Like, were they all Greek myth or do you have sort of other genres um, that you like to write as well? No, they weren't. And I think it's a good thing that it's this one that stuck because it is very different to all the things I was trying to write before. They were all fantasy and they were all young adult or um, I wrote one middle grade, I think. Um, but they were very much... Like my previous attempts at getting published were very much abiding to the trends and the genres that were popular back then. 
And I think it was just a response to getting rejections, uh, hearing that this is not like my style, this is not um, the market is oversaturated, or uh, this is not something I can see in bookshelves now. So I was trying to keep up with what agents were requesting. And I was so tired of rejections mm. and of writing these stories that I loved, but weren't completely, they were not, they weren't quiet, but they were, they were going down the very narrow path of what young adult fantasy expected of authors at mm -hmm. the time. And I was very, very tired of that. I was tired of rejections and kind of like, disheartened and when I sat down to write this I decided this was a story that was going to be for me and it didn't matter if it got published now or ever um, so I, I just threw in whatever I loved I threw in uh, the fades I threw in noir um, the noir setting and the noir tropes I loved I threw in a soulmate trope I threw in sisterhood uh, whatever I remember, it was a very pleasant writing experience because I woke up in the morning, I sat down on my computer and I was like, okay, what do you want to do today? What will be the most fun for you as a creator? And I just wrote that, which made for a very messy book. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> it was pretty much the plot and the characters were the same, but it, that first draft was just, it had no like fluidity, no continuity. It was just things I loved all over the place. And um, then the revise and resubmit from um, my agent, uh, it wasn't actually my agent, it was uh, one of my agency's other agents that then recommended me to my agent. It really helped narrow down the plot and narrow down the world to this particular story. Uh, but yeah, and there was another part of your question that I, I missed, I think. Oh, was it all inspired by Greek mythology? No, it was. No, it wasn't. I did write a middle grade that went pretty well uh, while I was playing it, but it wasn't. Um, I didn't get an offer of representation then, and then I wrote this one just for me. I I, I love that. I think it it sounds like you were truly muse inspired on this story, and you know, following what was authentic to you. And I, I, I think that's really good advice for, you know, listeners looking to write their own novels and that sometimes breaking that the mold of the trends is necessary to write, you know, a really great, meaningful book. It's really great. I think you can really feel, you know, how your life has influenced this book. You talked about, you know, not being a native English speaker. How did that affect your writing? I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of the original, there's a lot of different language in this book. So I kind of got a sense that maybe, you know, there was, you know, a love of languages, but is, is that true? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I love, I do love languages and I did try to keep um, to what I feel is uh, true about the world in that there's a dominant language, especially in narrative fiction, there needs to be a dominant language so that the, American reader or English reader can understand. But then um, there are often words we use in our native languages or there are words that have slipped into uh, the dominant language. And I try to do that, especially with um, the love interest who's not from 
Alante, who's not from the city, whose dominant language the book is supposedly in. And he he forgets words or he asks for help in remembering words or he he plays with language in the way that is not um that isn't familiar to Io, the main character. I tried to give him a lot of my experiences as a Greek writing in uh, English or as a Greek having lived abroad. I think in general, um, being a non-native English speaker did affect my writing in that I had to work very hard to get to the level I am today, especially with prose. Um, I read critically. I read, even as a teen, I kept a notebook while reading with new words, new idioms, new turns of phrases. I also paid attention to how a paragraph or a page or a chapter was structured. Uh, Because I think you can learn vocabulary and you can learn idioms and phrases and narrative tricks. Um, But syntax might be the trickiest part. Because in Greek, you can just place any word anywhere. So it doesn't have to be subject, verb, object. Like, I love podcasts. It can be podcasts I love. It can be love podcasts I. Or it can be just uh, podcasts love with no subject involved at all. And I think that used to lead to a lot of like messy language while I was a teen writing, but now I think it use, I, I consciously use it to try to play with syntax in English in the way a sentence or a paragraph would be structured in my native Greek, if that makes sense. It, it does. As a, I'm bilingual. I speak English and Spanish, um, and I learned them both at the same time. I'm not a native Spanish speaker in the traditional sense. I went to school, and like my family spoke Spanish, but I learned it at a really young age. It was my second language that I learned when I was like four years old, and so I've been speaking it my whole life. And sometimes I I still find myself switching the order of operations in a sentence, and you know, in both languages, like learning the the syntax is such a common complaint of non-native English speakers because English doesn't make a lot of sense, or I should say has really weird rules that are not very consistent. So I do understand, and I do understand playing with that with that prose. I think that's where, as someone who also writes, I've enjoyed kind of experimenting with the way that English is written and poetry and and, and kind of using some of Spanish's structure to do that and some of that passion that can be like, like when you were saying podcasts, I love versus love or, oh, well, how did you say it? Uh, well, there was a particular order that you used that I was like, I could see that on a stage. You know, I could see that being played out by a character uh, in a movie and just the different ways that we can use language to evoke emotion and, and set a scene. Uh, is really powerful. Oh, yeah. I love that. I love your story. I think it's the experience of lots of uh, bilingual or writers or writers who write in an acquired language. Trying to pull the two together is just so lovely to explore as a creator. 
I really liked how you said that. How pulling multiple language together is a is a strength and it's a it's a resource that you can use to to make your writing stronger and and be more creative, as opposed to um, you know maybe having it be a detriment. You know, trying to write in a language with which you're not a native speaker and is uh, could be challenging, I'm sure. But but I like the way you're coming at it. Of uh, it's an opportunity to be more creative. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It really brings that that depth to the story too. Of you know the character, um, Eddie. Eddie. I can't. I can't. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, I say Eddie, but I've heard lots of different things. I'm Eddie. Eddie. Yeah, I'm generally not one of those writers that has to has a strict pronunciation guide. I'm fine with whatever because, again, as a Greek <laughs> in English, I, it, I pronounce things completely different than someone uh, from the US or UK. I, I always try to say it, you know, I always add a Spanish accent. Like I, when I was learning Italian, I kept saying it like I was speaking Spanish because that's how I learned how to speak. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's yeah, always exactly. hard. I'm always like, how do I, but I love languages. So I love learning, you know, how everyone, you know, intends for it to be, to be spoken in, in that, in that language. So they, um, his, him in particular, I just, I loved how you wrote his language in his culture in, uh, you know, you tie in so many pieces, the, the food, uh, the decor in his home, his mannerisms, just everything about him, you know, it was so rich with different layers of his identity in the story. And then, you know, then the the relationships between the characters as well, uh, between him and uh, EO. And then EO and her sisters is so different, not just because of like the family ties, but also that that culture of Yo and, and they trying to learn each other and learn how to interact. These relationships were written so differently and so thoughtfully and intentionally. You know, how, how what was that process like for you? Was that, how, how different was it writing those kinds of relationships with the cultural aspects in mind too? Um, this is a really good, interesting question. I hope I can answer it well. Um, um, it was very different, uh, but it was all hued by Io's experiences and who her character is. She's, she has a very complicated relationship with how she loves and how she allows others to love her. So all of her relationships are influenced by these doubts she carries around about whether she's worth loving or whether her actions are morally right and her decisions are moral. Um, and I think I, I very much in, intentionally tried to make them opposite. So her relationship with her sisters and especially her older sister is one where the power is not equal the relationship is not equal. Someone has the upper hand. I'm not going to say more because spoilers. Uh, and on the other hand, I wanted Ede, even from the moment they meet, to kind of establish himself as an equal and repeatedly tell her, we are equals. You don't need to, um, like, you don't need to bow down to me because of who I am or what I do for a living, which he does very, very subtly. And it made for a 
a foil to the relationships he's had growing up and it made me very emotional when I was writing their their interactions because every time I, I tried to create more angst and drama, but every time they proved me wrong in that they they listen to each other very well and they are very aware of each other's emotions, which is, I think, something that good um, romantic relationships, uh, it's, a, it's a foundation for good romantic relationships uh, to really listen and to really perceive what each other is trying to say or what they're not saying. And they surprised me a lot in that they organically became this very equal safe relationship yeah i did i did notice a lot of that uh play between them and I, and i really loved it it was so different from her and her sisters where face you know was always pushing her 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 own agenda her own you know moral moral and ethic codes and and you know kind of shaming her sister that's that's a really common theme uh between the sisters did you draw any inspiration from your own family, your own experience as a sibling to write those relationships between Io and her and her sisters? Yes, I drew a lot. Uh, I'm the eldest of four and two of which, I'm the eldest of four siblings, not sisters, two of which are much younger than me. I was an 18 when my um, sister was born and 20 when my little brother was born. So I drew a lot from my experience being kind of like both a parent and a sister to my youngest siblings. Uh, I think that's the experience of the eldest in many families, um, that complicated relationships where um, the boundaries between sisterhood and parenthood are not always clear. And I tried very hard to reflect that in Eo's relationship with her sisters, obviously from a different point of view, which is Eo's as the youngest. But her relationship is very different from mine and that she she grew up in a world where there's constant danger and where moral decisions and ethos are not the priority. So her story is darker than mine <laughs> out of necessity. But yes, I, I do I do love my siblings a lot and I have or had in the past a complicated relationship with how I viewed them and how they viewed me. Um, and I tried, I really tried to reflect that in the book, just add more drama and more mystery. <laughs> I, I think we could have a whole podcast on sibling relationships <laughs> uh, and, and our roles that we you know, play as either the eldest or middle child, right? Our our birth order. Um, but I, I think that definitely that 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 dynamic plays well into the novel. And you know, I'm excited for our listeners or anyone who is reading it out there to to uh, catch up on what we're talking about. I think uh, you you layer that really well into the book. Um, and you mentioned the setting, our, our fictional world is recovering from a global disaster, uh, climate change, if you will. And to me, it was so interesting because you kind of the, the, the exposition on that uh, kind of is sprinkled in throughout the book. It's not like we start off with a 20 years ago, this happened sort of prologue. And 
I think that really set the tone, especially for, you know, a lot of us here and, you know, we're in California. And so we talk about climate change. I work for the government. So I talk about climate change all the time um, because I work in, I work in the public sector in sustainability and equity. Mm -hmm. So that's, that to me was like, okay, this is really timely. So how did you go about conducting that research? And um, like, why was this important for you to include in the novel? Um, it um, it started with a, uh, a an image. Uh, the whole book started with an image, which is basically the prologue and first chapter. The image was a girl standing on a rooftop while the streets were flooding around here, and she was holding a thread of fate in her hands. And uh, that image, I tried to like build the whole story around it. And one of the biggest elements that I found interesting visually and creatively was the streets flooding uh, every night. So I, I then set out to write a climate apocalypse setting uh, because I find it both interesting to explore and kind of, I'm kind of terrified of it. And one of my recurring nights <laughs> uh, has been um, being at the beach or in my hometown and just a a huge tsunami rushing my way, which is a very common nightmare, by the way. Uh, it's not just me. And oh, I, that's my nightmare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's very common. It's not just me. I don't. I wonder why. I'm sure there's a very good psychoanalytic reason. Um, I did a lot of research on uh, apocalyptic scenarios um, that had to do with nature. And I, I drew a lot of inspiration from my findings, um, like animal hybrids, uh, like the Kimerini in my book, or the bloated tides, or um, the melting icebergs that create wars uh, between nations looking for um, a supply of fresh, clean water, um, acid rain and neo monsoons and hurricanes and like bag infestations and then thinking of all that created led to more research on if these things happen how would people survive and how people would migrate and where so i did a lot of um research on uh, migration patterns after natural disasters uh which led to forming both the world in its entirety but the the way the city operates as well it migrates it moves from streets to roofs when the flood comes in there are nets over like the the streets so the chimerini don't come out um in the second book you'll discover floating cities and cities built on silts not silts tilts i think is a word and various other structures that I had lots of fun creating in the, for the second book. Uh, that's, that's good. I was going to ask you later whether we were getting a second book. So I'm excited to hear that. Um, I'm sure Rico is too. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but yeah. Um, well, and then, so then there's another thing that I really felt was very future forward in your book was the casual queer, as I, as I like to say, casual queer representation, you know, trans characters and non-binary characters that they were so seamlessly woven in. It took me 
like a few sentences, like a few paragraphs of reading to be like, wait, was that just a a non-binary they, them? And like going back and be like, it was. And like how how wonderful, like I feel like Greek myth, at least in my experience, I haven't read as many of the the newer iterations, but you know, I I haven't really seen that overlap yet as often. And so that that just again solidified this book as one of my favorite reads of the year so far. But yeah, I, I, what, what, ins- what, like how, <laughs> sorry, now I'm losing my train of thought because I just want to keep talking about it, but I figure I should ask a question mm-hmm. of yeah. why, why it was important to you to, to keep the queerness, you know, just inherently part of this society, you know, just this is the, the society is a little bit more equitable. Um, I think it's it's. I wanted to depict a modern world, a fantasy where we get a democratic system, we get uh, equality, even m- more equality than we have now. And it oh, it is mm-hmm. one of my pet peeves when uh, obviously there are wonderful works in any kind of like era. Fantasy books are based on, but one of my pet peeves is creating a very oppressive world in a fantasy world uh i i it's not for me it's not something i want to create i i do think uh stories where um queer oppression or racial oppression are very important and obviously there are many wonderful stories out there uh like that but i felt like this story didn't need to be about that and i wanted to to focus on the plot of the mystery on Ayo's relationship with her sisters. So it felt natural to me to uh, make this world, as you say, queer normative and uh, give the characters, at least in this aspect, some freedom and some um, the opportunity to be happy in that way. I didn't want that to be a central part of the novel, and I tried to populate it with queer characters because my life right now and pretty much everyone's life lives are populated by queer people in their everyday, everyday just going out or like friends or the people we randomly meet at the coffee shop. And I tried, I tried to reflect that in Eo's work, Eo's world. I tried to be as inclusive as possible also offering some happiness for queer relationships or queer characters. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's very reflective of, you know, our very modern world, but even goes further than that, right? Where it's not a conflict, it's not a judgment or, you know, moral failing on their society, right? There's no there's no judgmental subtext there. It's just inherent in who these characters are and inherent in the world and no further explanation needed because you know queer lives just exist. They are they they are. Um, I think too that's really kind of a, a nice little callback to you know ancient Greece where you know we we always argue in in you know the queer community like queer people have existed for you know centuries. Just look at the ancient Greeks and Romans. So I think it's it's also just inherently part of the the mythology that you've, you've chosen to, to write about. So I, I really like that. Still felt very authentic too. Okay. Okay. Perfect. 
<laughs> so yeah, and that how appropriate for Pride Month as we're interviewing you and this yeah, book is yeah, released. You know, we we have queer representation, like as like you know, in a surprise, I, I it wasn't marketed as a queer book, and I love that too because again, it's just queer is here. It is it is it doesn't need to be anything other than what it is, and and I love that. So yeah, actually, uh, one of the funny things is that. Io is herself queer, but it's not on the page anywhere because I didn't feel she's bi and she's demisexual. But there's no opportunity for her to say that, even like even mention it kind of like in the background in the book because she's so obsessed with this soulmate. She has this fate thread. She has that uh, is a boy. And mm-hmm. see, there was a moment, I think, in one of the earlier drafts, but it got cut in revisions. And then I tried, I did try to keep all the moments where I think I've written here as demisexual. And I've heard for from readers that she comes off that way, which is very pleasant to me that she does. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I, that's, and that's where I, you know, like, I don't know if this is a real term or if I'm just using it for myself, but that's where like that casual queer representation uh, you know, that that's where this book kind of falls into for me because it didn't need to be said. Like it's sort of a, if you know, you know, moment. And it's just so organic and authentic to who EO is. Um, and I just, I, it like you said, it's beautifully written. If you read the book, if you're paying attention, like it's so clear there that that's who you're dealing with. That's her identity. And, but it doesn't matter because the the story is like, we are trying to figure out what's going on in my city. Like we have to help these people. Yeah. Yeah. So that just felt very authentic to, you know, the queer experience too, that I'm very happy. Sometimes there's just other stuff going on. (laughs) I'm very happy. She resonated that way. And I'm happy you could tell. I, I, I do love that about here, but it's not something I ever get to talk about because it's not explicitly there in the story. Yeah. But in, in some ways, like that's, it's nice, you know, it, I mean, I, I'm all for explicitness, but it's also nice that that's not something she has to ever explain. You know, it's just, it's who she is. And, and we talk about her in such a multidimensional way. And that's what I love about her having like the multiple, more threads than anyone in the story that we know of. And yeah, it's just, she's a really great complex character and, and you wrote her beautifully uh, in that way. There's a lot of, I'm sure there's things I even miss that, you know, you put in there. So yeah, I think th- that's just my favorite kind of writing where there's like little Easter eggs you have to hunt for. You can really tell your passion for this character in that. I'm so happy. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you can tell we. Re- I really liked the book. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also want to say, if, if, if I may, uh, I, I really did appreciate how complex these characters were but how real they were earlier you were talking about uh the relationships between siblings right and and i i am the oldest of three i have two younger sisters and um just seeing the interplay between the three sisters that just really resonated with me uh of how like authentic that felt like the good Mm -hmm. but the challenging it sometimes right you don't always see eye to eye sometimes you sometimes you put expectations on your siblings that aren't fair to them and you have to kind of keep yourself in check um, and accept them as they are. And, um, and yeah, it's just, just every character just felt so believable to me. Um, 
and and that really made reading uh i mean there's a lot in this book that was great i mean you mentioned how this book is genre bending and there's just so much in there right it's a mystery but there's mythology and, and there's romance and, and there's just so much to sink your teeth into um and so that in itself is like enough for the price of admission but but the characters really made uh reading this a joy ah uh, thank you so much thank you mm -hmm. uh, i do think it's one of my one of the lessons i learned in recent years as a writer and, and i do think if any of your listeners of our listeners are writing right now i do think the best advice for character development is just to put them in a situation and then think what would a real person do not a character within this world who needs to get the reader from plot a plot point a to plot point b but what would a real person or you yourself do in the situation or say or respond to someone else's statement and when i get stuck that's usually what i go for or when i get edits for my from my editor or agent who um don't understand motivations or don't or the reactions i've written don't respond very well um i always go for what would i do what would i really do because Obviously, people are very, very complex, and then characters need to be as well, even if they serve to get us from plot a, plot point A to plot point B, they need to feel and they need to act as real people. Yeah. yeah well, uh, one pet peeve that Bella and I have talked about in the past is um, certain elements in a book existing only to cause drama. And, and a lot of times as characters, it's just not talking to each other, not telling each other things, not asking certain questions. Uh, and it's really only to keep characters in the dark and, and raise the drama. But it's so frustrating sometimes because that's not the way people, some people are like that, but in general, people will talk to each other and 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 ask questions. And that's always the, the quickest way to get me out of a story yeah. is, is just talk to the other person. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, just be a real person. Like that's not yeah. a, the way a real person would react. And so the fact that you, you know, you, you sit down and ask yourself, what would I do in the situation? What would a real person do in the situation? Is it's just so, so nice to hear. And, and I think really lends itself well to the characters being so rich. Yeah, I completely agree. I also with, uh, hate the withholding trick, either withholding from yeah. one character to each other or withholding from the reader. I think it can be done well, but usually when a character is like, I have made a plan and then we don't get to hear what that plan is, feels so unrealistic to me that it throws me off. Yeah, yeah. Especially in, in a mystery book, you know, which, oh, which it yeah. is, like, you know, you want to see the little the breadcrumbs, you want to see the clues, you want to get the big reveal at the end and realize, oh, it was all there from the beginning. I just didn't put it together. I just didn't see it. And it's always frustrating when like, oh, this is the big reveal at the end. And there is no way for you as a reader to have known that. Yeah. And so as I was reading this book, I was like, all right, I think I have my theories. I think this person isn't what they seem to be. And at the, I thought the mystery element of this book was also really well done. Okay. Can I ask if you guessed the culprit at the end? Um, no. I didn't, uh, or, or not, not entirely. I, there, there was, there was as good mysteries do, they do the fake out reveal. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I was like, okay, I saw that coming. I saw that. Uh, and then, you know, you take it a step further 
but it, but that, that's also kind of a credit to you and the writing is if the book is good enough and I'm this invested, I don't actively try to seek that out. Sometimes I will really think about a mystery novel. I'm like, all right, who is it? Who is the big bad? Who is the culprit? And that's usually because I'm not engaged enough. Yeah, yeah, I get But if I'm engaged enough, I kind of just like going along for the ride. Um, And that was a situation where I was just kind of going for the ride. I fully fully agree with that. That's also my experience. But one of the, I wanted to tie back to uh, what you were saying earlier. One of my editor's suggestions was when I realized who is behind everything, I had their name right there. And that's how the chapter ended. And we went into like the final, final action. Uh, but my editor was mm-hmm. like, oh, she shouldn't. But my disagreement, my argument was, but she knows we're in her thoughts. She knows she needs to say it. How can she not say it? That would be, we're listening to her thoughts. Her thought would be the character is the culprit's name. And we compromised on a flashback or like, not a flashback, a callback to one of the lines the culprit says to her that strongly alludes it's here, but also keeps her name, keeps their name to um, the reveal when the person is in scene. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really, I didn't like think about that, but that's a really clever trick to give us what we want, but it's like still a breadcrumb at the same time. It's still leading to the big reveal. And I think that's kind of what you did throughout the book that it built organically to where I was invested and trying to guess, but at the same time was like, I don't have all the information and I know that, but I know it's coming. Like you're not keeping something from me, if that makes sense. Like it was an intentional, like uh, that, like the cup trick, like sleight of hand, like we're moving the pieces around. I'm keeping it just out of reach, but you know, it's there until the end. And so I think that's why it was hard to fully guess the ending, but it still made sense if, oh. without spoilers. Okay. okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. But also I'm accepting thanks on behalf of my editor who did a lot of work on this. It was one of the, I think it was one of the harder parts of editing, pulling, pulling up all of the clues and red herrings in a way that's well paced, but, that also doesn't leave the reader wandering off or wanting more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the story developed, it un- it unfolded in a good pace, if that makes sense. I'm trying like not to say things that could give yeah. plot so points away. <laughs> it's so yeah. hard because I want to say like a character's name and I'm like, is that a spoiler? I don't know. Uh, so erring on the side of caution that, you know, things characters were revealed or introduced or, you know, expanded upon in ways that felt pretty organic. It's really refreshing to hear that, you know, that that was part of your process was like, what would a real person do in this situation? Because that is something that gets, you know, can get frustrating. I love a good romance novel, rom-com, right? And there's so many, you know, miscommunication withheld tropes in there. Um, and I, you know, they have a time and place, but when I, re- when I'm reading such a good, like fantasy novel that can get really frustrating. So it was really nice not to have that. It was like, oh, get to the next part because I want to know, not because I'm frustrated, but because like, 
it's moving, it's happening. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I really tried and it's still one of the biggest lessons when I learned as a writer to focus on real relationships, no matter what you're writing, whether I'm writing fantasy, uh, young adult, adult, when I'm writing uh, romance, I feel like realism is what will keep readers reading in a way. Yeah. Um, I have, I have a question. Uh, we've talked about how this book is, is, is a lot, there's a lot in, in it, right? You call it, you call it earlier the, I think your first version, uh, just like a big mess of, of ideas. So there's a lot in this book and I'm curious as to, uh, what may have been some of the, the books or, or authors or like even movies or TV shows that perhaps influenced this book or in general, just your writing, like what sort of stories do you gravitate towards? I, I pretty much enjoy everything. I read very, very widely, um, especially in YA, but also in adult and some middle grade. I think there wasn't the, like a Greek myth specific story that inspired this because I read all of the big myth books. Uh, afterwards, mm-hmm. I read Lore, which I think if you like Threads That Bind, you will also like Lore by Alexandra Brackin. Um, I read that after I wrote the book. Uh, but in general, I do love I do love uh, stories that play with lore in a fun new way that I like to think uh, as a writer that I like to play with uh, lore and myth, um, such as like. Deathless by Catherine Valente or Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik or even like um, the Gotham TV show or uh, what else? I, I, there's so much. There's so much. I So, for example, I really love um, post-apocalyptic movies, uh, but also like disaster movies. And I keep thinking of that movie with... The Rock, where the tsunami hits LA, I think, a skyscraper or something. That was a big inspiration, and it's completely random because I just like the imagery of water, <laughs> water like flooding a city. Uh, but in general, I, I I do love anything. I love it, when it comes. I do read fantasy the most, and I love good world building. That's my kink. I like very big expansive world building absolutely <laughs> um like you said that's your kink world building yeah. <laughs> i i yeah i was just <laughs> i need that on a t-shirt <laughs> i'll think of the exact same thing the world building is sticker, my kink. <laughs> yeah. yeah amazing i love that such a crossover with our other series after yeah. dark where we talk yeah. about Romance novels, uh, small books. So I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so I know we've we've been on for a while, and we don't want to keep you too yeah. long. Um, but I have a final question. But I want to make sure before we sort of wrap up talking about the book. Um, is there anything that you want our readers to know about this book that we haven't covered yet? I don't know. Whatever that may be, anything you want to get across before we we wrap up. Um, I think it's been a wonderful conversation and I think we've covered pretty much everything. The one thing I like to talk about, if you want, is, uh, the Romans. Oh yeah, of course. Go ahead. 
Okay, so a little bit about the romance is that I've always loved the soulmate trope as a teen I was obsessed with like the werewolf imprinting in uh, Twilight or like fae mates uh, in uh, fairy stories or even, um, what was it called? Uh, oh, um, Fallen, which was a very old, like 2010 YA series about a girl um, who falls in love with the same dark angel every every decade, every century or something. And the love is fate. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved these as a teen. And uh, Soulmate Trope was my absolute favorite. Uh, this idea of a, a destined love out there for you and just waiting for you. Um, but then as an adult, <laughs> I started questioning it more and more. Um, m- this aspect of destiny against choice and it always felt odd to me that as a teen i never doubted that you meet this person you know they are your soulmate and you never question that how can you not like you don't know them you have met them you met them a week ago or a day ago in most uh cases of why insta love and um i've always wanted to write a soulmate romance but with this, I tried to kind of explore this duality of destiny vs. choice. And I tried to make it, I don't want to spoil anything, but I tried to make it central to their relationship and how they treat each other, um, Ayo and uh, Io and Ede. Um, and I, I really had a lot of fun um, bringing a soulmate trope to like a more modern, a modern, to bring it to through the eyes of a modern person who values choice and values deep relationships more than a, a, a fated mate. I love that you brought that up because that actually is. Exactly what my final question was going to be. Um, not ex- not specifically about the romance, but the idea of fate uh, and choice in this novel um, in particular. But yeah, I I also used to love that trope when I was younger, um, and I I was actually very lucky to have met my partner and now husband when we were in high school, <laughs> and so it's it's something I've always you know we we check in every few years like are we still choosing each other because I still see it as a choice that you have to make to like continue to love the person that you're with, regardless of that connection or that sort of destined feeling, if you will, um, which I always make fun of myself for. Cause if you know me, I'm a very, uh, (laughs) I'm an optimistic realist. (laughs) So it's really, it's just a really funny, uh, scenario and I won't get too sappy, but yeah. It's cute. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It was really interesting to me in this book that you made that conscious effort of, you know, choice and getting to know each other and developing the relationship beyond just like its fate. And so I, I wanted to end our episode by asking you, do you believe in fate or do you really believe in, you know, free will and choice? in love and life, however you choose to interpret that question? Um, I absolutely believe in choice. I think optimistic realist <laughs> is also my description. I am uh, very much like a chill type A that likes 
their things organized, their thoughts organized. And no, I don't believe in fate. <laughs> um, it doesn't have <laughs> to do with the book because fate in this book is kind of like emotions that her fate, Aya's fate is rare in that she has a thread with someone she doesn't know. So typically, even in this world, it's choice that matters in in the world of threads, I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, overall, I do think choice is more important in love and in, in anything. And I think it's important, especially in the world we live in right now, to kind of acknowledge that I loved this thing as a kid or I I had this passion or this dream as a kid and it's okay. It's very okay for dreams to change or for goals to shift or for the for the profession we love we had dreamed of to turn out to not be for us. And I think we need to be more acceptive acceptant of um all the ways that life can change and we can change year to year. Oh, I love that. I, I lo- That is such yeah. a great message to end on. And I think it's just a great reminder and really core to the story. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. This has been uh, truly wonderful. I really enjoyed myself and uh, you are very good at what you do. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, to go back to the theme about choice, everybody listening should choose to go out and get this book, Threads That Bind. It's out now. We cannot recommend it enough. Um, seriously, if you like mystery, mythology, slow burn romances, um, complex characters, post-apocalyptic po- worlds. P- politics. Politics. Um, a queer people just existing in the world. Yep. Well-rounded, you know, multidimensional characters. like. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great book, yes. Uh, Kika, is there anything that you would like to uh, promote, talk to people where they can find you, social media, website, anything like that? Um, yeah, I have a website. It's www.kikahajapulu.com. I'm on most social media at, uh, at Kika Hajapulu, but m- almost entirely active on Instagram and nowhere else. Yeah, same. And, <laughs> same. Uh, <laughs> That's it. There's a sequel uh, coming summer 2024. I can't reveal the title or cover, but I have seen the cover and it's even better than the first one. Uh, And I'm very excited uh, for Eostory to conclude next year. Fantastic. Well, amazing. We can't wait, obviously. (laughs) Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much, guys. Shit We've Read is hosted by Laura Benson, Jason Rico, and Bella Romero, with music by Joshua Chilton and editing by Jason Rico. To join the discussion on this and all other books we've read, find us at Shit We've Read on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. For more information about us or to request transcripts, please visit shitweavered.com. This podcast is part of the Bilo Network. Visit bilonetwork.com for more great geeky podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.